As we come to our text for today, we are back in Hebrews chapter 1, and we're walking through these amazing statements that are made uh, in the beginning of this letter that speak of the glories of Christ. In fact, this letter is really about the glory of Christ. It's about how Christ is greater than all of the images and pictures of the Old Testament. Christ is the fulfillment of these things, so He's necessarily greater than these things. How can angels compare to Christ? How can the tabernacle compare to Christ? How can the priesthood of Levi compare to Christ's perfect priesthood? And so the author of Hebrews gets right into it. He wants us to know from the very beginning that Christ is entirely special, entirely glorious. And so we come to it today. Now I know it's Mother's Day and sometimes we have stopped to do a Mother's Day sermon, but uh, we're in this series and I want to keep going. Of course there's dangers in that. Uh, I remember Steve Lawson one time was talking about when they were in Revelation. He's like, we are not going to stop no matter what happens. We're going to keep going. And so the text for Mother's Day morning was the whore of Babylon in Revelation. So he says, sometimes it just happens that way, you know. Anyway, so luckily that doesn't happen today to us. We are here looking at this important text. And as we come to it, we want to think about what we've seen. We have seen many things. First of all, Christ is the perfect prophet of God. Now we spoke about why this is so essential in understanding the Incarnation. We live in an age where many people say, well, the Incarnation, is it really that important? It's essential because you cannot hold biblical doctrine if you don't have it. Christ cannot be the perfect prophet if He is not both fully God and fully man. He is the one who can represent God because He is God. He is the one who can speak to man perfectly because he's become like his brothers. He shared our experiences. He is the perfect prophet. And that is the argument of the very first verse, isn't it? God in various times and in various ways and parts and parcels at different times spoke to our fathers through his servants, the prophets. And in the same way, he's speaking now in these last days. But there are differences, right? It wasn't in prior times, now it's in these last days. And He's not spoken in part and parcel, He's spoken finally and fully. And it's not in the uh, representation of servants, it's in the person of His own Son. And so again, you can see both continuity and some discontinuity there. But He says, make no mistake about it, this is the fullness of the glorious revelation that we are to be given, it is found in Christ and in Him alone. And if you think, well, that's all it has to say about this glorious Christ, then just move on. Because it also says that He has been appointed heir of all things. This one who is to be not only the perfect prophet, but also the perfect priest and king. All of these mediatorial offices of the Old Testament. We see that in this one. He is the heir of not only of David's throne, he certainly is the heir of David's throne, but is the, he's the heir not only of one nation, but of all nations. We looked at Psalm 2 and how it makes this argument that God says, ask for it and I will give you all the nations as an inheritance. So he's been offered all the nations. He is the heir of all the nations, but it goes beyond that because he's actually the heir of everything all that exists. And we can see not only the logic of that as we looked at that text, but the next week we went to the next phrase, which says, through whom He also made the world. 
God created the world through Christ. Christ is the one who created all things, and therefore it by divine right belongs to Him. So again, we made the point this is talking about something in His messianic role as the perfect King. He comes and inherits all things, all nations, all things belong to Him, all things given to Him. He is the heir of everything that exists. Well, that's a lot to be said. Perfect prophet, perfect priest, perfect king, perfect sacrifice, creator of all things, perfect revelation of God, and the creator of all things. Hard to top that. But the author will continue. He goes on to today's text. What we want to look at specifically today, who, meaning Jesus, being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. He continues, and we'll look at this next Sunday, and upholding all things by the word of His power. Now think about that for a moment. He didn't just create all things, but all things consist and subsist because of Him. It all stays together because of Him. But I'm jumping ahead. We want to look at what we're looking at today. I get excited by this text. He is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of His person. Now, as we think about this text, we need to think about it because it's an important text. And I want us to think about these two points this morning. The revelation of the text and the importance of this revelation. So what does this text tell us, this verse today, what does it tell us and why do we need to hear it? Why do we need to know it? Why do we need to believe it, trust in it, declare it, stand upon it? Why do we need to? Well, I hope we're going to look at that today. So as we begin this morning with this idea of the revelation of the text, the text has two phrases. You can see them right there. Who being the brightness of His glory, here's your first phrase, and the express image of His person. So we want to deal with both of those because they're both important, both crucial in understanding Christ. These phrases are, as Peter O'Brien says, complementary. In other words, they are working together to point to the glory of Christ, but they do it in slightly different ways. And so we want to look at both of them. So we want to start with the first phrase, as the author starts with the first phrase. Who being the brightness of His glory. Now, we've been talking about this. We know who Christ is. The Son of the living God, the second person of the Trinity. God incarnate, God in flesh. We know this. The heir of all things, the one through whom all things were made. That's the same Christ that's now being spoken of in this way. The brightness of God's glory. The brightness of God's glory. Now, what an amazing phrase, but we need to exercise caution with this. And I'm going to explain why as we move forward. Uh, This phrase has been used for 2,000 years to battle heresy, and it's been used to prop up heresy. Now, obviously, to prop up heresy, a misunderstanding or misapplication of the text. The proper application battles against heresy, but we need to think about these things. He is the brightness of God's glory. Now, any way this text would be used to minimize the glory of Christ, you know it's a wrong use. That's where you can just start. If any way this is used in some way to diminish Christ, make Him less than fully God, then you know that it is a misuse of this text. And church history has stood on that for 2,000 years, has made that abundantly clear. There is no way that this text speaks of the inferiority of Christ. He is absolutely glorious. It's just described him as the creator of all things, heir of all things, the perfect prophet. How could it now say, oh, well, he's of a lesser glory? 
That's not at all what's being said. He is of an incredible glory. In fact, it says Christ is the brightness. Now that word in Greek for brightness is apugasma. And it means radiance or reflection. And so this is how, by the way, it gets misused. They say, well, isn't a reflection not the real thing? It looks like the real thing, but it's less than the real thing. And that's why it's very important when we think about this text to think about it rightly and what the author is trying to tell us because that word apogasma can be used in a passive way, that would be reflection, or an active way, radiance and brightness. And that's a very different thing. I don't think the power of the argument rests in whether it's an active or a passive. It rests in the church understanding for 2,000 years what is being said in this text, understanding rightly and rightly dividing what the Word of God is telling us. This text is telling us that there is something special about Christ, that when we look at Him, we see something awesome. Something awesome. When you see the glory of Christ, you see the same glory which God the Father has. The same glory by which Christ is glorious is the same glory by which the Father is glorious, is the same glory by which the Spirit is glorious. All equally glorious. And this is important to to keep in mind. Because as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, this text has been hijacked from time to time to argue that it displays a lesser glory for Christ. And that is not the case. That is not the case at all. Athanasius, the early church father, said, Who does not see that the brightness cannot be separated from light? Brightness and light cannot be separated. We can only comprehend light by its brightness. They're of the same thing. They cannot be separated. Another church father, Ambrose, stated, Where there is light, there is necessarily radiance. And where there is radiance, there is necessarily light. To try to separate them is foolhardy. Radiance is not inferior to light, but it's the very way in which we see and comprehend radiance. If there is no radiance, to us there is no light. That is the argument that the author of Hebrews is trying to make. How can we know what the Father is like? Jesus, the Son, has shown us. Jesus, the Son, has shown us in perfectly equal glory, not lesser glory. A.W. Pink put it this way in an analogy in which he tried to say, think of it like the sun. Brightness issuing from the sun is of the same nature as the sun. It's how you think of the sun, that it's bright, that it puts out light. He said you can't separate them. For a sun without brightness is no sun at all. And that's absolutely true. If I look at the moon, I don't get confused if the moon is the sun, do I? I say if it has any light, it's just a reflection. You can see the argument here. We can only recognize and see that it's the sun by the light that the sun puts out. That's how we know that's a star. It puts out brightness. Brightness is not contrary to the sun. It is what helps us to see the sun. Now that's particularly helpful, I believe, because what he's saying is uh, the author is not talking about degrees of glory. He's talking about how we can see the Father through the Son. If you understand the glory of the Father, look to Christ. He's the only way you can comprehend the glory of the Father because He has the equal glory and He's the same in substance and in all ways except in personhood. And so again... It's important to recognize this, that Christ came into the world and He said over and over to those that would say, well, we don't really like you, we like the Father. He says, you're wrong. You're either rebellious against my Father and don't realize it, or you hate my Father too. But the truth is, if you reject me, you've rejected Him. 
Everything that you would love about me, you would love about him. Everything you would hate about me, you would hate about him, and so on and so forth. It's not about degrees of glory. It's about understanding that Christ reveals to us what God is like because he is God in flesh. So again, just like sunlight, without the gracious revelation of Christ, we could not comprehend the brightness of God's doxa or glory the remarkable and staggering weight of His splendor and glory. We couldn't comprehend it. There were pictures in the Old Testament, weren't there? You had the the burning bush on fire but not consumed. You had uh, glory in uh, the pillar leading the children of Israel out of uh, in, in the exile, leading them out into the wilderness. You had all kinds of pictures of the glory of God in the Old Testament. But the fullness of that is Christ. He is the fullness of all of it. If you want to see the glory of God, You can go back and read those amazing texts. They're of benefit to us. But you can see it even more fully in Christ Jesus. That's what the author is trying to say ultimately in this book. The Old Testament is useful. It's glorious. But understand that it points to Christ, who is the fullness of all the glory it pictures. And so if you want to understand God the Father, you need to understand and comprehend God the Son. And that is what this author is telling us. He is the one through whom we can see, comprehend, and fathom on some level the perfect glory of God because He is perfectly glorious. Yet, on that point, we still make a distinction, don't we, between radiance and the sun. We recognize that the radiance is what we are seeing and it comes from the sun. And again, uh, the early church father said in the same way, we can use this as an illustration of how there are distinctness within the Godhead. So, one substance, yes, they are co-substantial, but different in personhood. The Father is not the Son, is not the Holy Spirit, right? They are distinct persons. So again, we need to keep that doctrine in mind. As we'll see, that's incredibly important to this text. All right, so, we've seen the first phrase. We've seen the first phrase, that He is the brightness of His glory, the radiance of His glory, of His doxa, of His impressive weightiness, His glory, glorious. We're going to come down to the second phrase and look at it. It's an interesting phrase and I am uh, wanting us to see how it is also misused. He says what? He says, being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, the express image of of his person. Again, we need to be careful and see what the inspired author is telling us here. Christ is the express image of God's person. Now, this is the same way many people manipulate other texts to say, well, see, that's saying that he's not really God. He's just showing us God. Well, the author of Hebrews is arguing both that he is God and he shows us the Father. That is the entire point here. And this word, character, that is used here for express image. It's one word in the Greek, character, and it means the exact representation. If you have the NASB, that's what it says, the exact representation. The New King James, as you heard a moment ago, the express image. And then uh, the ESV says imprint, imprint. Now, it's important that we get this right. I don't know if any of you here are coin collectors or have spent any time Uh, collecting coins or thinking about coins if you do this will be helpful to you this understanding this because the reason the ESV uses imprint is this world this word actually means to stamp or engrave to stamp or engrave 
Now this will also be, by the way, how the heretics misuse this text. Okay? But think about it for a moment. If you know anything about how coins are made, they have a die. And it stamps the sheet and stamps the image into the coin. Right? And if you're a coin collector, you know all about this because dies get damaged the more metal they stamp. So over the course of stamping, coin after coin after coin, the design in the die gets duller and duller and duller and duller. So coin collectors want those early coins that have what they call the highest relief, the highest contrast, ultra high relief, whatever they call it. In fact, those first coins, if you ever see a high relief coin, the face of the coin is like a mirror, perfectly, just perfectly smooth. And the design has the most relief to it. It raises up, it's got sharp detail, and in fact, people talk about it being like a cameo. The background of the coin almost looks black to the, the face of the coin looking white. And it, it just, coin collectors, that's the bee's knees, right? That's what they want. That's what they collect. Here's the interesting thing about it. This is the same word for stamping something, a coin, or, or stamping a seal. And so you can imagine where the heretics go with this. You see, Jesus is merely a stamping of God. He's a copy. And although copies can be close, aren't copies necessarily less glorious than the original? But that isn't at all what's trying to be said here. That isn't at all. Just like in the brightness of His glory, it's a misuse of the analogy that's being made here. The early church fathers said, you know, we're dealing with infinite things. And although language is a wonderful gift that God has given us, it is finite. It has its limits. There are limits to how we conceptualize that which is eternal. I remember as a kid, a preacher in this church said that eternity is like a mountain and a bird going every hundred years and taking a beak full of dirt from that mountain. How long would it take for the mountain to disappear? And that's just an idea of getting an idea of how long that would be. But that's still not eternity. Do that as a billion times over and you're nowhere near eternity. There is no earthly picture that we can come up with that will describe eternality to us. Because we live in time. Everything we know has a beginning and an end. God is different. He has no beginning. He has no end. He has always existed. He will forever exist. So there is no way for us to grasp these thoughts in the human language. Our minds are limited in what we can understand. We recognize this. And the more we get into the text, the more we realize the limits to our minds and ability. The author, the inspired author, is using great language here. But it is human language. You have to understand what he's trying to say. What he's trying to say is, when that first coin is stamped, that coin will look identical to the die itself. There'll be no difference. If you were to turn the die over and that first coin, you would say they look identical. That's what he's trying to say. When you see Christ, you are seeing identically to what the Father is, who he is, the same exact substance, no variance whatsoever, no knockoff copy, no degradation in his glory, the exact same fullness of glory. He is as close as can be because he's exact. Now, how would you describe that in human language? Not easy to do. So again, the author uses this way of thinking of it. He is the ex exact imprinting 
of God. When you see Christ, you see the Father. He is exactly the same. There is no degradation. There is no diminishment. He is fully God. It's the opposite of what those who taught this heresy were teaching. Christ is not of a lesser glory. He is of full glory. Spurgeon said this text shows us that there is not any glory in God, but what is also in Christ. Also fully in Christ. And that is made clear in this text because what does Christ bring into sharp relief? If a coin brings its die into sharp relief, it shows us what the die intended you to see. Then the question is, what does Christ bring into sharp relief? Well, what does the author say here? He says, he brings what into relief? The person of God. That word, hypostasis, is the word from which we get the hypostatic union. It means substance, being. He says, what does Christ bring into sharp relief? The very substance of God. Now, my friends, the only way you can do that is to be the very substance of God. That is what the early church understood and taught. In other words, this text tells us that Christ is the express image of His person, the express stamping of His substance. He is not less than God. He is fully God. That is what the text is saying. So Spurgeon was correct where he went on from what I wrote a mom- read a moment ago to say, whatever God is, Christ is. Because Christ is God. Now these men are just saying what the Scriptures testify to. John chapter 1, after establishing the co-eternality of the Son, states what? And the Word, the eternal Logos, the eternal Word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And a little further on in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, has declared Him. John's saying the same thing. How do you know the Father? You look at the Son. How do you know the Father? He is declared by the Son, who is fully God. Colossians 1.15, Paul states that He is the image of the invisible God. By the way, the same heretics misuse that. that. They say, hey, icon, that means like it would be like a picture. What it's saying is when you look to Jesus, you can see God. That's what it's saying. They're trying to put it in language that people can understand, that we can comprehend. So again, if all of that isn't good enough, let's turn to the words of Jesus himself. John 14, Philip asked Jesus, show us the Father. It's sufficient for us. Show us the Father. That's all we ask, Jesus. You're a great prophet. You're a great teacher. Uh, The Messiah Just show us the Father. Help us to understand Him. Help us to comprehend Him. Well, how did Jesus answer? Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? Can you imagine this? You know, I've been with you this long. You've followed me around. I've taught you this long and you still don't know who I am. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There is no shadow or turning between us. We are of the same substance, the same essence. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's just like me. Just like me. Now, our Lord certainly doesn't mean that He is the Father. But neither does He mean that He's 
merely a copy of the Father. He means, as you see my divinity, you see the Father's divinity. We are separate persons, but one substance. Or Christ is telling His disciples and us that when you've seen Him, you see what the Father is like. You don't have to wonder if Christ was for something, if God is for it. You know, this is part of the problem people uh, can get into and why we've emphasized when we say the Father sent the Son, we add, who freely came. I've made this point over and over. Why? We want to make the point, the plan of salvation was not the Father saying, Jesus, you have to go. Jesus desired to go. When you've seen Jesus, you've seen what the Father is like. That's what he was testifying to. Now that's what the text says. Why is it important? Why does it matter to us? Because after all, it's theology. It's kind of difficult for us to conceptualize and understand. Why do we need to know these things? Why do we need to devote an entire Lord's Day worship to this? Why do we need to know it? Well, my first answer and most basic is it's in the Word of God. If it's in the Word of God, we need to study it. We need to know it. It's given to us for a purpose. And therefore, we need to consider it. We need to think about it. Why did the author of Hebrews want us to hear this? Why did God, the Holy Spirit, inspire this? Why did we need to know this? Well, I think we're going to see the second reason answers that as well. This text refutes consistent errors in teaching. Consistent errors. The reason I say consistent is I can say, look to the earliest days of the church and the church fathers. The battles they were fighting were on this very subject. Others as well, but this one was a predominant uh, battleground. There were heretics in the early church that were arguing contrary to this verse. In fact, this verse, Hebrews 1.3, was the source of many of those arguments that they were making, the heretics. They would say, I'm going to quote a text. Hebrews 1.3, it says this. And so one of the early church heretics that you may have heard of is Arius. Arianism, maybe you've heard of this. Uh, One of my dreams has been that we will eventually have a time, uh, Wednesday nights, maybe eventually to uh, begin looking at subjects in in short runs. One thing I've always wanted to do was have a history of heretics and walk through the heresies of the church so that we can learn why they're wrong and why we need to avoid them and why we need to understand and be able to listen for these problems. Because I'm going to tell you, one of the heresies we're going to deal with, a major preacher on television preached for many years. And good Christians would tune in and hear him and say, I like that guy. Not recognizing he was teaching something the church for 2,000 years has said is incompatible with Christianity. And so we need to know what it is we're supposed to believe. Part of the problem we have in the modern church with uh, kind of being against doctrine and theology and confessional statements is we don't know what we're supposed to believe anymore. Christians can't defend their faith. They can't articulate their faith. And they fall for all sorts of false teachings. And so again, we need to see this. Arius argued what? That Christ was God's first creation. He reads these texts. He says, well, it says he's a reflection or a radiance and he's a stamping, so he's not God. He says he must be then something created by God. Now, the first one and the most glorious to be sure, but he's not fully God. And he walked down with some implications of this text. And they are all bad, (laughs) all bad. 
and began to get in battles with some of the great church fathers like Athanasius, who basically said, this is heresy. And so we had early church councils, Nicaea and Constantinople, that basically were formed just on this, mostly to deal with this problem. And you've heard of the Nicene Creed. It was created to answer this heresy. And the Athanasian Creed to battle this heresy. And another heresy that was dealt with uh, at the time uh, by a man named Sibelius, who taught Sibelianism. And what he argued is, all the Orthodox teachers have misunderstood the text. You see, there aren't three persons, there's one person. One God, one person. When he's acting like a father, we call him the Father. When he's acting like the Son, we call him the Son. When he's acting like the Spirit, we call him the Spirit. He said God presents himself in different modes. It's called modalism. That's another name for this. Now, again, the same Nicene Creed, the same Athanasian Creed condemned this, the same councils condemned this as heresy, said you cannot be a part of the church if you believe this. Now, why is this important? You say, well, that's 1,600, years ago. What about today? What do you think Jehovah's Witnesses believe? Christ is created, the first creation of God, of a lesser glory. Now, He has a glory, they say, a glory given to Him by God. But again, need to recognize this is important. There are other people that teach very similar things. And uh, Unitarians teach something very similar to this. Some people point out that Mormonism teaches a variation of this. Again, uh, declared a heresy for almost the entire existence of the church. And heresy is a strong word, understand that. It means if you believe this, you are not with us. That's what it means. Understand that. It is a strong word. Now, what about Sibelianism? Well, Arnold Murray was a very popular television preacher until he died a few years ago, and he taught modalism all the time. He said, uh, when, you, when the father refers to himself as the father, he's being a father, but when he came into the world, he came as the son. My friends, the early church had no problem saying, you're not a Christian if you believe that. I said a popular preacher today preaches it. T.D. Jakes teaches modalism. Modalism. That when you look at God the Father, you see the same God as God the Son, but the same person as God the Son. He's just acting like a son here. They, this is often the illustration that's used. You know, to my wife, I'm a husband. To my father, I'm a son. And to my son, I'm a father. But I'm the same exact person. That is not the doctrine of God. That is not our understanding of Trinitarian theology. That is a rejection of 2,000 years of Trinitarian theology. We need to recognize it. There's an entire uh, movement, oneness Pentecostalism, that is based around this idea. That God is one in substance and in person. My friends, we need to recognize this is really a more dangerous one, I think, even than Arianism. Because most Christians who grew up in church will say, Jesus wasn't created. Like, I know enough to know that. But that other thing kind of makes sense because all of our teaching on understanding the Trinity is terrible. It's terrible. Uh, you can think of every example you've ever been taught. It almost always 
fails to capture the glory of these truths because language fails to capture the glory of these truths. Again, they are eternal and infinite ideas. They cannot be fully expressed in finite language. We shouldn't expect that they can be. So there's a reason we need to be precise. There's a reason we have texts like this. Christ is not created, neither is He merely a mode. He is the consubstantial, co-eternal, second person of the Blessed Trinity. And the Scriptures and the Church has taught this for 2,000 years. 2,000 years. My friends, we shouldn't err in it. I want to close. I told you uh, after we finish Spurgeon's Catechism, we're going to go into the Orthodox Catechism, written by a great London Baptist preacher of old, Hercules Collins. And uh, in his catechism, he put the Athanasian Creed in the back of it. And I, I just want to read a little bit of it. Think about the great men God raised up 1,700 years ago to wrestle with these ideas. They didn't have Athanasius to quote. They didn't have these great church leaders to quote. They had to think through the Scriptures. They didn't even have the great men of the last 400 years, like John Owen, to quote. They had to prayerfully work through these doctrines. And here's what he says, part of the Athanasian Creed. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit, but the Godhead of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all one, is one, the eternal, uh, glorious, equal, the majesty co-eternal, such as the Father is, such is the Son, such is the Holy Spirit, the Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Spirit uncreated, the Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, the Holy Spirit incomprehensible, the Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Spirit eternal, yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal. Also there are not three incomprehensibles, nor three uncreated, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, the Holy Spirit almighty, yet there are not three almighties, but one almighty. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Spirit is Lord. Yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. Now, my friends, is that easy for our minds to comprehend? No. No. So how do we begin to comprehend it? We look to Christ. We look to Christ, the glory and radiance of God, God Himself in flesh. And as we... Wrap this up today. I want us to think about something. It is only because this doctrine is true that Christ can come into the world and purchase us on the cross. It's only because He is fully God that He can be the perfect priest and king and prophet and sacrifice. You know, I couldn't go to that cross and die for you. You know that. You couldn't either because we are not perfect. We are not the spotless Lamb of God. And in the Old Testament, all those sacrifices offered up over and over again were never enough. They proceeded on and on, year after year. Even Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, year after year after year after year. Sacrificing. Entering the Holy of Holies. Sprinkling blood upon the Ark of the Covenant with hyssop. But it all pointed to Christ who has the perfect sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God, the perfect High Priest, is enough, being fully God Himself. 
My friends, if you don't rightly divide what the Word is saying on these things, you're going to be shipwrecked. People are shipwrecked because they miss what these texts say. It is essential. I've quoted this many, many times, but I want to quote it here one more time to show the importance of these doctrines. Rob Bell, right when all the youth groups were having his material uh, in, in the youth groups, I remember those days, he came out and he said, uh, so the incarnation, it's not important, is it? He said, uh, if somehow we could find out that Mary had been intimate with a Roman soldier or something like that, and that's where Jesus came from, would you no longer have faith? He acted like you're supposed to say, well, no, I would still have faith. The answer is no, I would not have faith. If the Holy Spirit did not overshadow Mary in this creative miracle, Christ cannot be the Son of God. And if He isn't the perfect God-man, He can't go to Calvary's cross and accomplish anything. So again, I say, no, my faith would be Shipwrecked then, it would be gone. Because Christ cannot be who the Scriptures say He is. But here's the joy I have. That knowledge will never come to be known because it doesn't exist. It isn't real. Christ is fully God and fully man. The incarnate Word able to go and bear the sins of His people and to pay the price. He alone is able. Why did we sing that song this morning? Or we didn't. They sang it, but we need to sing it. Not in me. I can't carry the weight of my iniquity. I can't atone for it. But thank God Christ could. Christ could. Amen.